on this episode of the End of Tourism podcast, Season 3, Invocations. And what I found with so many of the Indigenous travellers I was interested in was that they did the same thing. They left accounts of British society, of customs that they found interesting or problematic or just kind of dumb at the times. They were able to cast that kind of critical eye that was being, you know, cast upon other societies at the same time. They too had that sort of critical perspective on British societies. Welcome to the End of Tourism podcast, Season 3 invocations. This season features a deeper dive into the crevices of exile, wanderlust, and radical hospitality with diverse authors, activists, and storytellers. For some, tourism can entail learning, freedom, and financial survival. For others, it means the loss of culture, land, and lineage. Our conversations explore the unauthorized histories and consequences of modern travel. These are dispatches from the resistance. You can listen and subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any major podcast platform. You can follow us on social media via the handle The End of Tourism. And if you want to continue to see the project grow, you can support us via our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the end of tourism. I'll be your host, Chris Christou. On this episode, my guest is Cecilia Morgan, a professor in the Department of Curriculum, Teaching, and Learning at the University of Toronto. Her work focuses on 19th century and early 20th century Canada as part of the British Empire and transnational worlds. She has been researching the history of English Canadians and Indigenous peoples' travel, tourism, and transnational mobility for over 25 years, and is particularly interested in the way that gender and empire have been part of those processes. Her publications in these areas include Sweet Canadian Girls Abroad, English Canadian Actresses on Transnational Stages, Travelers Through Empire, Indigenous Voyages from Early Canada, and A Happy Holiday, English Canadians and Transatlantic Tourism. Professor Morgan lives in Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario, Canada, a destination for cultural and wine tourism. As well as witnessing the many changes the town has undergone since the early 1980s with the expansion of tourism, she has written about its history in her book, Creating Colonial Pasts, History, Memory, and Commemoration in Southern Ontario. Welcome, Professor Morgan, to the End of Tourism podcast. Thank you for joining us today. And do you think you could offer us a little peek into where you're speaking from and, and what the world looks like for you, where you are? Okay. Well, thanks so much for inviting me, first of all, Chris. I'm delighted to be here. So I am speaking to you from the town of Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario, which I should also mention is the traditional home of these neutral people and the Anishinaabe people. It's also covered by Treaty 2 of the Upper Canada Treaties and also by the Dish With One Spoon Agreement General, which is an agreement between Indigenous people to share the land and respect one another's use of it. So where I'm coming from is a town that's very interesting. It has a long history as a home for loyalist refugees following the American Revolution. It also has a history as a place where enslaved people have lived. But I would say the other, you know, really interesting and probably very relevant part of this town's history for this podcast is the fact that since the 1880s or so, it has been a tourist town. 
a place where people have come to, you know, enjoy the lake, the natural surroundings, Regency and Victorian homes, because it has not actually been touched much by industrial activity. And today it's the home of the Shaw Festival Theatre, a lot of winery tourism, agricultural tourism. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what that term means. We just had, you know, as everybody did, the municipal elections and we had a number of councillors, in particular, you know, one who was very big on the notion of agritourism. And I kept thinking, like, what, what exactly does that mean? I mean, what does that mm-hmm. mean? Does that mean you want, you know, are farmers going to be willing to have tourists come and stay with them, live with them, stare at them? You know, I mean, it just gets bandied about right now as a more somehow more authentic form of tourism. But I think it's still, it's also highly problematic when most of the reasons why you're able to run these farms is because of, you know, labor from mm-hmm. other parts of the world that's being highly exploited too. So I'm sort of surrounded by tourism in the place where I live, but I've lived here since the early 1980s and came here not as like, not as a tourist, but as a performing arts worker, along with my partner who's just retired from the Shaw Festival Theater after working there for about 40 some years. So I would say an ambivalent relationship to the tourism that surrounds me in this place. You know, it's supported my household. It's allowed us to actually have a home here. It's allowed me to pursue graduate work in Canadian history. But I have also seen some of the less fortunate things that it's done to this area. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the enduring insights, perhaps, that comes out of this work on the pod is that in tourist places and even outside of them, we all seem to be implicated. Yeah. In this industry and in this lifestyle. And so I really, really appreciate the fact that you're willing to recognize it in part because it seems to me to have a place in your research and the way that you have come to writing about travel and tourism. And so in my research, I came across your work, including numerous books of yours, Sweet Canadian Girls Abroad, A Happy Mm -hmm. Holiday, and the book Travelers Through Empire, Indigenous Mm -hmm. Voyages from Early Canada. And it really struck me as something that I had never seen before, and and frankly, not really since, although you do mention some other books in regards to uh, the travels of Indigenous people in what we would otherwise call or have called the colonial period. Mm -hmm. I'm curious for our listeners who may not know, would you be able to offer a little bit of background on the book Travelers Through Empire and perhaps the inspiration that drove you to write it? Sure. I thought, well, one of the reasons I became so interested in that topic was that in my previous book, A Happy Holiday, which is about English Canadian travel to Britain and to Europe from 1870 to 1930, I knew that there were Indigenous people who had traveled during the latter part of the 19th century and the early 20th century. So, for example, the poet and performance artist Pauline Johnson, the writer, ethnologist, and activist John Brant Sarrow, who, like Johnson, was from the Haudenosaunee community of Six Nations, and other people who were chiefs from British Columbia, for example, who had traveled to Britain to petition the Crown for redress of, of land and resource grievances. And I thought I would include them in that particular book. I thought they could be their own chapter, but... The reviewers for my Happy Holiday book said, no, this looks like it deserves its own attention. So I left them out of that particular project because I realized they were right. And then when that book was finished, I started thinking about, well, is there a longer history here of Indigenous people traveling outside of what we now call Canada 
outside of the British American colonies and the Dominion of Canada. And I knew a little bit. I knew that there had been, in the early 18th century, there had been a number of Haudenosaunee chiefs who had traveled to the British royal court. I knew that Joseph Brandt, one of the, the leaders of the Haudenosaunee during the American Revolution, had traveled to England and had been treated like a celebrity while he was there. So I just thought, you know, let's kind of start poking around further and further. So what became clear to me was that, you know, there was this very long history of people being mobile. And I think that for me, that was a revelation because I think a lot of Canadian historians maybe, and but also certainly Canadians in general, we tend to think of Indigenous people as having been kind of encased and encaged by colonialism, that they lost all their ability to move, whether it's to move geographically or socially or culturally or politically. And certainly that was sort of the fate for a lot of people with the development of settler colonialism in Canada or British American colonies in the early 19th century, their lives became circumscribed. But what I also kept running across was the fact that that very colonial state often made it, I wouldn't say possible, but certainly necessary for people to, you know, to, again, to be mobile, to go to Britain, to petition the crown for land grievances, sometimes to go as part of a traveling troop of entertainers, sometimes to go for missionary fundraising, which was the case of Peter Jones, who was a Anishinaabe and Methodist missionary, as well as being an Anishinaabe chief in the 1830s and 1840s. So I kept finding more and more instances of these, and I thought there are patterns here. There are sort of similarities. I mean, there's some important differences too. So individual stories were important to me, but there were also patterns as to why people went. And so at the same time, other scholars too, Cole Thrush, who is a, a scholar at the University of British Columbia, who works in Indigenous history, also has looked at London as a kind of a center for Indigenous people. In fact, his, his book is called Indigenous London. And you know, he makes a claim that at that particular uh, city, the heart of the British Empire, the metropolitan, you know, center became, in his arguments, a kind of indigenous territory as people entered into it and claimed spaces and made spaces in order to mostly to present political grievances, but also to claim, you know, new worlds for themselves. So just as we think of Europeans claiming new worlds, <laughs> however erroneous that notion is, so too did indigenous people claim spaces in Britain during the, the period I'm looking at. There are also people who looked at Europe as well, but my interest was mostly in people dealing with the British Empire. So my work was kind of confined to that. In that book, I've also looked at the travels of children of the fur trade, the Northwest fur trade, from about the roughly the early 1800s to about the 1870s. And these were children whose fathers, for the most part, were Scottish, a few English, who decided when they left the fur trade and were sent back to Britain to either bring their children with them, or in some cases, when they died, had their children sent to Britain for education and also to meet their British families. In some cases, those children went back to the Northwest fur trade country or to Red River. In some cases, they stayed and married British people and in a few cases, went to other parts of the British Empire. So I was sort of interested in how you know, colonialism has moved people around for various kinds of reasons, but sometimes that kind of movement was not always what colonial officials imagined it was going to be. Sometimes it could subvert the overall gains and or overall goals and aims of, of colonialism. I mean, just even 
before reading the book, coming to it, it was kind of this light bulb is, okay, so why, why haven't I heard about this before? Mm-hmm. Right? What is it as a Canadian national that I either learned or was taught to think in regards to Canadian history and the level of mobility of Indigenous people in that? Now, I'm sure I didn't take any classes either in university or high school specifically focused on that, but how is it that a particular imaginary around this, this, mm. this notion of mobility arises and, and can be learned almost unconsciously, perhaps. Another thing that came up in that regard was, surprisingly for me anyways, was that, uh, you know, I almost assumed that none of these travelers would have been Christian, mm. right? And so this is something that you focus on, at least in the first few chapters of the book that I found really, really fascinating was that a good amount of these these indigenous travelers from Canada to Britain and perhaps to Europe as well were in fact not just baptized Christians, but actually missionaries. And I'm wondering for you, what were some of the main differences that you noticed between those indigenous travelers traveling overseas who are Christians and those who are not? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, because most of the people I looked at were in fact Christians. I think one of the things that Christianity did, for better or for worse. I'm not saying that this is something we need to celebrate, but it did provide literacy in English. And in some cases, the people I'm looking at, the multiple generations of their families had been exposed to Christianity, but it did provide literacy in English and encouraged it to at least to a certain extent so that people were able to leave their own accounts. And that was actually something that guided my research. I knew that there were also people who have not left their own accounts, particularly from the 18th century. And while I find their stories very interesting, I really wanted to, I think, sort of dig down into the accounts that people had left so that as somebody, I'm not an indigenous historian, so those languages are not available to me, but I really wanted to discover like what kind of claims were they making? What motivations did they have? And also what did they make of Europe? Because they left, in some cases, travelogues, very much like people, you know, contemporaries at the time who were going off to places in Asia and Africa or other parts of North America or South America who were also writing travelogues about the people they had seen and the places they'd been and, you know, sort of ethnographies of of various customs. And what I found with so many of the indigenous travelers I was interested in was that they did the same thing. They, you know, they left accounts of British society, of customs that they found interesting or problematic or just kind of dumb at times, or, you know, they were able to cast that kind of critical eye that was being, you know, cast upon other societies at the same time, they too had that sort of critical perspective on British society. So, and Christianity was, you know, was part of the reason why they were able to do that. And two, I think for some of the people in the 1830s and 40s that I looked at, this is a moment in which various societies in Britain, this group called the Aborigines Protection Society, other missionary groups, abolitionist societies, were becoming quite concerned about the plight, as they called it, of indigenous people in settler colonies. So the violence that people were experiencing in Australia, for example, or in Tasmania, the kind of dispossession of land that many indigenous people were experiencing. And so some of this travel was actually facilitated and assisted by these groups who felt that it was important both for the British crown to hear these appeals and also for the British public to become aware other things that were happening in colonies that were being set up under their name, so to speak. 
So some of these humanitarian organizations also helped people get to England. Peter Jones, the man I mentioned earlier, came both to redress political grievances and the loss of land, but he also came to raise money for missions in Upper Canada, and he was helped in that by the British Methodist Church and other humanitarian organizations. Catherine Sutton, Nani Bawikwa, his niece, an Anishinaabe woman who appeared before Queen Victoria in 1860 to petition again for the illegal loss of her land, was helped by the Quakers to both to get across the ocean, to find sympathetic supporters in London, to find people who would arrange for her to have an audience with Victoria. So religion played a role in bringing these people across the ocean too. And you also mentioned certain aspects or themes or confrontations, cultural confrontations around race and gender, in part because the 19th century certainly being an extremely... uh, for lack of a better word, fucked up century in regards yeah. to the way that race and the social sciences began to use quote unquote scientific methods or pseudoscientific methods in order to categorize people and turn race essentially into a weapon globally. And so you, you talk a little bit about these notions of these travelers encounter in Britain and Europe. And I'm wondering if you could speak to a little bit of that for our listeners is these notions of race and gender that for even though there were some of them and maybe a lot of them were converted Christians, that it was still a bit of a shock from what they saw in England and in Europe. No, that's a really good point, Chris. And there's so many different ways to answer that question or engage with that point. I mean, for one thing, a number of these travelers came from communities with a very strong sense of their own histories, a strong sense of of the fitness of their own and legitimacy of their own political and social structures. And so when they got to England, They experienced a range of reactions, but I think one of the things that bothered people so much was a sense that they were being treated like exotic spectacles, like specimens Mm -hmm. in the zoos that were starting to form, some of which also, you know, had displayed indigenous people themselves. You know, so I think there's all, you know, that sense of shock of not being taken seriously as full human beings who represent societies that from their perspectives were just as developed as British society runs through a number of, you know, their writings. You know, and at times they would talk about things like the poverty they saw in British cities, social dislocation that industrialization was bringing about, the degradation of of people who, you know, were turned out onto the street to beg. And for them, that kind of poverty and the sense that people were being cast out by their societies, I think, was very shocking for a number of Indigenous travelers who who came from societies where, I don't, you know, I don't want to romanticize them, but people had a place and were looked after if they encountered difficulties. So I think that's one part of it, that feeling that the kind of discourse and language that settler colonialism used, which was that of indigenous primitivism and indigenous inability to cope with modernity, gets kind of really interestingly reversed in their eyes when they go to Britain, because they see that British society is not perfect, that people suffered, and that there were grave inequalities. And that things like industrial pollution, for example, were everywhere in so many places. And that alcohol, they were constantly worried about, you know, the introduction of alcohol into their communities. They went to Britain and saw just what kind of damage it could also wreck on British society as well. For me, that's sort of a very strong part of their reaction. And I think too, you know, this is the notion of race becoming increasingly understood in biological and scientific terms is something that starts to shift over the course of the 19th century and becomes much more hardened. And for 
a number of these people who saw themselves as being perfectly able to adapt to new social conditions, new challenges, but to go to places where they're being seen as sort of primitive leftovers or sort of ethnographic specimens of a bygone time didn't make any sense to them at all. It didn't, didn't accord with their sense of who they were as full human beings. You know, you speak about this notion of spectacle, and in your book, there's throughout the chapters, a lot of the people or some of the indigenous people who traveled from what today is Canada to England and Europe at the time were engaged in performance. And in this context, you know, it's generally referred to as spectacle. But you also describe the agency of the indigenous travelers understanding that they were very much being Mm. entered into spectacle and that they were doing so consciously. They were entering themselves into this in part as a form of resistance to empire. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. Sure. I mean, I see this in the, you know, in the 1840s, for example, when Anishinaabe performers go quite subconsciously as performers to England. And when they're seen, you know, people would look at them on the street if they, and especially knowing that here was a group of quote unquote Red Indians, a term that's often used in a kind of a, a derogatory way, they would turn things around in different kinds of ways, almost almost sort of taunt people. Um, I have this one instance of one particular performer and his cohort, you know, throwing coins at people and then watching them scramble for them and laughing and saying, you are no better. You know, you think that you are superior to us and you come and you gaze upon us but you really know better. And, and certainly in, in many ways, you're showing that you're actually, you are more degraded. You know, that being said, there, were, there are moments, I think, of cross-cultural communication. Usually when people are taken away from the street or the exhibition platform, when they meet in more intimate domestic settings in which they can talk and exchange information or viewpoints or perspectives. But there's, there's also the case in that particular group, one of their members married an Englishwoman during the time they were in England. And the wedding itself was treated in the pages of Punch, the English satirical paper, as this kind of meeting, not just of exotic beings, but of primitive savage beings. There's a lot of line drawings that make fun of them, that talk about the kind of future that this young woman is going to have. Then there are also moments when they're so well aware of the fact that they're being seen as a spectacle that, you know, for example, Peter Jones was asked to wear indigenous clothing when he appeared on lecture platforms to raise money. And he wrote privately about the fact that he just disliked that so much because he felt people were looking at the clothing, not understanding any of its meanings to him or to his community or its history, but just seeing him as, again, as this kind of red Indian from the forest and not hearing his words and not understanding the fact that here we have somebody who is a missionary, a minister, a chief, you know, comes from a community, has a long history of dealing with, with Europeans in the settler colony. Then his niece, Catherine Sutton, when she went to meet Queen Victoria, made a clear statement about the fact that she refused to wear Indigenous clothing, actually. And people have looked at that statement and thought, does this make me? She talks about how I'm a good Christian woman and I know how to dress properly. And some people have said, well, that just indicates her degree of assimilation. Which could be the case, but I also think she was well aware of the fact that when her uncle appeared, because she was with him on one of his tours, people didn't listen to him so much or understand the fullness of his humanity. 
they just saw a stereotype. And I think that's also what she was doing as well, because she made no bones about the fact that she was, in her words, an Indian woman. And she was very proud of that history and of that ancestry. And then later in the 19th century, you see, and early 20th century, you see people like Pauline Johnson and John Brandt Sarrow wearing Indigenous clothing very specifically and very strategically in, at times. And Johnson, as she did in her tours of North America, would start the first part of her of her performance wearing a kind of a bricolage of Indigenous clothing that she created herself. And then she would also wear European clothing in the next part, and she would show that she was perfectly capable of transitioning between those worlds. You know, Brant Serro did the same thing. He would sometimes appear in Haudenosaunee clothing and then in a black suit and a white shirt and a black tie to give, you know, lectures on his people's ethnography. And I think, too, it's saying to people, I can move between these two communities. And it's not that I'm conflicted, but I can claim these things and they're all part of me. They're not, you know, I'm not one thing or another. I mean, again, I think, you know, these things are always complicated, but I think these are political statements that people were making. I mean, Brant Serrow appeared in Folkestone in southern England as part of a male beauty pageant wearing his his indigenous clothing, but he did, he did not win. He came in second to another man. But I think I think it's also partly, too, for him, there's this whole discourse of the, the banishing Indian that is created at least in the early 19th century, if not earlier, and then has kind of picks up legs and really has a lot of purchase for people. So there's, you know, people think that, yes, there are indigenous people around, but their culture is gone. It's been steamrolled over by this sort of superior white civilization. And I think one of the things that Brant Saru was constantly doing was saying, I am still here as an Indian man. But that doesn't mean that I also don't know how to maneuver and manipulate and strategize my way through European society as well. It's fascinating, you know, because I guess in the critiques around tourism and perhaps modern urban society in general, there's always a certain degree of contempt for the spectacle. Yeah. And here in Oaxaca, I was just meeting with a few friends the other day and kind of having this conversation of if we were to develop or introduce or present some kind of intercultural curriculum, which is to say an achieved version of it, whatever it might look like, Mm -hmm. would it be possible to do so undermining, subverting, overcoming a spectacle? And at the end of the conversation, we didn't really have a, a strong answer because how do you escape something that you're inside of? And I guess that maybe brings me to my next question in regards to these notions of spectacle that these indigenous travelers were entered into and entered into, you know, consciously. Given your research in that regard, and given the fact that you currently live in a tourist town, what parallels between then and now do you see in terms of tourist culture? And what might we learn from these indigenous travelers in regards to spectacle? It's a really good question. And it is, it is one I thought about a lot, in, especially in writing the latter part of the book. Because spectacle by that point had become such an entrenched part of imperialism's display to itself and to others. I guess just by backing up a little bit, one of the reasons why people participated in things like some of these traveling troops, for example, and I'm not talking, not really talking so much about Wild West shows right now because those come later and they're a bit of a different beast in my estimation, was that this was an opportunity for them to display 
their culture as best they could under those circumstances on their own terms. And to be sure, some of the, some of them were professional performers. They, they knew how to work crowds. They knew what people were expecting. But what I saw was that some of them were always trying to push that a bit further to say, you came, you thinking you were going to see this. Now you, yes, you're going to, I'm going to give you this, but I'm also going to give you a little bit more of that. And I think what I see is a little bit more agency than in some shows whereby white promoters, sometimes with the collusion of white governments who, you know, for, for Buffalo Bills shows, some of those performers had been coerced into going, let's either that or go to jail, right? After participating in indigenous uprisings in the United States. And I think the same thing with Johnson and Brant Serro. They make conscious decisions to go to Britain to perform. Did it for money, for sure. But by by the same token, I think they they did exercise a bit more agency and a bit more choice, you know, about what what they were going to show people and what they weren't going to show people. And I get hints of that in newspaper interviews when they kind of push or pull away from some of the reporters' questions that are more obtrusive, just generally ruder. But you're quite right. It is so hard to move away from because we, you know, we've also inherited this, right? It's like living within capitalism for the most part, whether we like it or not, and have to figure out how to deal with that. I think today, I mean, what I see happening, and I know there are people who are better, you know, better versed, more expert in the area of indigenous tourism than I am. But from what I see across Canada is that more communities are engaging in tourism in ways that they feel they control a lot more. So they bring people in to their communities under their terms. And sometimes I know they have done this because people were wandering into their communities quite rudely, without respect. And it's also, you know, not to be too naive about this, it's also a way of of making money that you can control. You can't move away entirely from all the kind of stereotypes and tropes that I think have shaped our experiences of tourism in the last 200 years. But I think what I am interested in as a historian is like people trying to carve out these spaces for themselves in which their representations are not completely predetermined by others. And then there's another interesting question of audience reception too, right? What do audiences take away? It's really, it's so tricky. And so for a historian, it's so hard to know unless you get firsthand accounts. I mean, I, my other work is in sort of the history of performing arts and it is almost impossible at times unless you're lucky enough to stumble across things like caches of fan mail or, you know, correspondence with performers. Mm. But sometimes you get hints, because often what you're also working with too are newspaper accounts. And sometimes you get hints that audiences saw things a little differently than the messages that they thought they were going to receive. Well, actually, that, that leads me to my next question. It seems that much of the raw material for Travelers Through Empire came from first-hand sources of travel writing, travel logs, I should say, yeah. of Indigenous travelers, while another book of yours, Sweet Canadian Girls Abroad, focuses on the travels of performing sweet girls. Now, I'm curious for you, what, what major differences, if any, you noted between these travelers' accounts of how they're influenced? What major differences you saw in, I guess, between Indigenous travelers and these quote-unquote sweet girls? And maybe you could just preface that by offering our listeners a little bit of Who's Sweet Girls? Oh, my sweet girls. So Sweet Canadian Girls Abroad refers to a group of women. In this, in my case, they're white, they're English-speaking, and for the most part, they were born in Canada, although some grew up in Canada, had strong Canadian affiliations. They weren't necessarily Canadian-born, who made their living 
as professional actresses between roughly 1870s and the 1940s. Most of these women performed in the United States, a small but I think significant minority also went to Britain and, you know, again, made their living performing in Britain. A few of them not only toured the United States extensively and also Canada, but they also went to Australia and New Zealand. That's a, a small group, but I think an interesting group. I was interested in looking at them partly because of my own background working in the performing arts many years ago before I became a historian, but also because when I was researching my book on English-Canadian overseas travel, I kept seeing all these discussions about these Canadians who had made it on the Broadway stage or had made it in the West End of London, you know, sort of the late 19th, 30, 20th century iterations of things that we still talk about today. And I thought, wow, there's something something very interesting going on, because I was also at the same time seeing a lot of discussions of people going to theater as part of their tourist experiences, so going to theater in, in Britain, which again kind of contradicted my notion of how popular theater might have been in this period. And it turned it seemed to me that it was actually a lot more popular than than I assumed. So these were women who appeared in a kind of a whole variety of different productions. Shakespeare for sure. A lot, you know, almost all of them did Shakespeare at some point, but comedies melodramas, in some cases, musicals and musical reviews, and a few in vaudeville. But for the most part, I was interested in people who made their living on quote-unquote legitimate stage. And I, I sort of wanted to see how, how did they get involved in this? What, was their, you know, what were their lives like? What were their careers like? How much attention did they receive? And I found that particularly for some of them, I mean, quite a lot of attention, actually. I mean, these were women who nobody would know about them now. But in their time, they were actually, a number of them were very well known, very well respected, were celebrities, basically. So those are my sweet Canadian girls. <laughs> and what, what, you know, what differences, if oh, any, do you see yeah. between, in regards to that celebrity, between them and, and maybe in their travels as well, if there's anything that you picked up on? Because, uh, you know, we could say performing arts, but certainly there's a degree of spectacle in that as well. Oh, definitely. I mean, one of the sort of big spectacles a number of them appeared in were things like not just Shakespeare, but also historical dramas that were often staged as much for their use of particular or the reenactment, loosely based, of particular historical periods as much as they were for the merits of their scripts. So like big, you know, big productions in which castle would appear on stage and animals and all kinds of special effects. I think one of the similarities that I, I noticed, a lot of differences, but one of the similarities I noticed was the attention that the press paid to bodies and the importance of bodies to celebrity, the kind of way in which these women embodied certain kinds of ideas for their audiences, just as the indigenous travelers embodied certain kinds of ideas for both the people who would see them in Britain, but also their home communities and also you know white people in the settler colonies from which they had come. But I think one of the big differences that kind of surprised me a bit, Chris, was the fact that I was able to get at you know, travel logs. I was able to get at personal writings for a number of the people that I looked at in the Indigenous travelers' books. I was able to get at far fewer of those for the actresses, even though these are women who were white by the time they finished their careers, generally well off, educated, had degrees of power in their society that the Indigenous travelers did not. But it was much harder to get at their own personal feelings and subjectivities and their own feelings of, of what the experiences were like for them. I guess, though, just to complicate things again, the difference is, is that for Indigenous people during the period I'm looking at, 
in many ways, in other aspects of the community's histories, life was becoming more circumscribed for them. They were moved onto smaller and smaller plots of land. The territories that they had once occupied became more circumscribed. The Indian Act in Canada after 1876 introduced all kinds of strictures as to what Indigenous people could and couldn't do. For the women I was looking at, becoming a performer, becoming an actress actually opened up worlds for them in many different ways. It certainly wasn't easy. And for some of them, the promises of fame never really materialized. They were working actors, but doing so under not great conditions. But still, the world opened up for them in different ways. They were able to travel. I mean, in fact, had to travel in the period I'm looking at. If you wanted to make a living in theater, you had to tour, you had to be on the road a lot. As I discuss in the book, for some, that also opened up the possibility of being a tourist as well. And some of them actually wrote about their experiences of being on a train, looking at scenery, going to places like Hawaii and commenting on Indigenous people there or Indigenous people in Australia or, you know, visiting places and seeing people that they would never would have seen had they stayed in the, the town or the city they were born in. Yeah, it, it's at the very least eye-opening to hear that although the conquests of Indigenous territories worldwide during the previous centuries were generally speaking unidirectional, at least in their principles, yeah. in terms of imperialism, that there was uh, many directions in which the mobility of individuals and groups took throughout. And that complexity, I think, deepens our willingness to, to see the, the history in a way that, generally speaking, it wasn't taught to us in public school, we'll say, right? Yeah. In, in yeah. government-sanctioned education. In that regard, to kind of slowly come to a, a conclusion, I'd like to return to that notion and the complexity that is absolutely required if we're going to proceed towards any form of interculturality or, you know, affiliation in Canada and other places between colonial governments and Indigenous people. And so I'd like to return to your book for a moment, A Travelers Through Empire. And I pulled a couple quotes from the book that I'd love to read, if I may, very quickly. So the first one is, overseas travel then might mean the chance to defend rights to land and call attention to the betrayals of colonial administrations, as well as giving Christian indigenous people a platform from which they could demand humanitarian support and sympathy from their audiences. Emotional bonds might lead not to mourning, but to political activism. And of course, you're speaking in, in regards to the 19th century there. And then the second quote is, the trajectories of these relationships did not fall into any one pattern or category. Their varied paths suggest the complexities of such intimate relations forged both within and against colonial power, end quote. And so I'm curious, Professor Morgan, what lessons forgotten or passed down to us might we take from these accounts of how Indigenous people traveled into the heart of empire? I think one of the things I'd like people to take from this is Indigenous people's agency. For me, that, you know, it's not an uncomplicated agency. It's not always a straightforward resistance. And so often we think of resistance as being manifested in kind of physical ways, right? Warfare or, you know, or, you know, demonstrations. But I think resistance could take many different forms. And people who have looked at various communities, both indigenous ones, African American ones have seen resistance taking, you know, more, more subtle forms, but it's still, it's still resistance. It's still a disavowal 
of one person's power over you or an institution's power over you. So I hope that people could, you know, think about that as, as part of that lesson. And it's, it's a resistance that's produced within colonialism. I don't, don't want to be again to sound naive or say, or let people think that this is somehow taking place outside of the structures and strictures of colonialism. It's something that's come about because of things that colonists have done. But nevertheless, a two-way process may sound too simplistic, but it's a more multi-factual or a more multi-level kind of process in which people engage in different ways according to what they can do at certain moments and what they can't do, too. And I think, too, that you know we can look at big pictures, and they're certainly important, and they're certainly what we need to think about in big structures. But I think we also need to recognize how human beings have engaged with those structures and that it's not always as simple and as straightforward as we might think. And so that's my point about not thinking of this only under the kind of the emotional terms of mourning, but, but, you know, recognizing that certainly people were mourning things at times and calling their audience's attention to things that they had lost because of colonialism. But at the same time, they were also remaking and reshaping. And I think that that needs to be part of our understanding of the period too. For me, it's not an either or kind of situation. But I think if we can take that theme of agency exercised in different kinds of more subtle ways, as well as the big obvious ways, then I think we I think we understand the past a lot better. And I think it also stops us from feeling both sort of mourning ourselves, but also avoiding something that the you know in, that the sort of very influential English historian E.P. Thompson talks about, which is the kind of condescension of the present towards the past. That people in the past were just as complicated as we are today and struggling, maybe not exactly with the same kinds of things, but struggling with questions that are not that dissimilar. I mean, I can say that I think with some ease because I studied the 19th century and so much of what we deal with today has its roots in some way, shape or form, I think, in in the 19th century. Yeah, you know, it's just some little breadcrumbs for steps forward in this in this kind of way of reshaping our approach to the past, to the present, and, you know, to what we would otherwise want to make of it. Yeah. I mean, and I love studying the past for all kinds of reasons. I mean, one of the reasons is that, you know, having said that, yes, you know, so much of what we deal with is rooted in that 19th century, but so much of the 19th century is also different from us. And that also fascinates me. But, some, of, you know, something that I hope I convey to my students all the time is that simply because things were, you know, this is maybe simplistic, but simply because things were a certain way in the past doesn't mean that people didn't question them then and doesn't mean that we can't question them now and try to work to make them different today. I mean, I think some, sometimes people, when they think about the weight of the sheer weight of our histories, they become burdened by the, the, that weight and depressed by it. And they can't see that things could be different and that there were people in the past who thought things could be different too. Beautiful. I love that. I love that. And, and what a gift to our listeners. So on behalf of them, for you, Cecilia, a deep bow for your willingness to come on the pod and speak to some of your work and what you've been willing to put yourself, put yourself to all these years. And before we depart, how might our listeners find out more about your work? How might they find Travelers Through Empire, Sweet Canadian Girls Abroad, A Happy Holiday? Okay, so my uh, university has just redone all of our faculty website profiles. So mm-hmm. if your listeners are interested... They can, you know, just Google me at the University of Toronto and they'll be able to find their way to my website profile. It's within the Department of Curriculum Teaching and Learning. So that's another way of finding me if you go into that website. 
pull up the faculty profiles, you'll find mine on that list and they can see my profile there. But I'm so, you know, so happy to be able to, you know, come on the podcast and talk about these things. And, and thank you so much for inviting me, Chris. It's been a great discussion. I really enjoyed it. That's my pleasure. It's my pleasure, Cecilia. I mean, Travelers Through Empire was absolutely groundbreaking read for me. So I encourage all my listeners to go and go out and find it and take a read. Thanks for listening, everyone. For more, you can check out the homework section under each episode on our website at theendoftourism.com. We'd also like to offer a deep bow of gratitude for our patrons who ensure that the project keeps growing and so that all of you can listen without a paywall. In this way, we participate in the gift economy and invite you to do the same via our Patreon page at patreon.com slash theendoftourism. Likewise, you can follow us on social media via the handle The End of Tourism. Until next time, farewell friends.